Hello, Lake Norman! Excited to be with y'all today. Come on. If we have not had the pleasure of meeting, my name is Sam Taylor. My wife Jenny and I are the kids coordinators here, but I also have the privilege of being part of our teaching team. Now, if you're new to the church, we are one house with many rooms, but we're not a video venue. That means every Sunday, every service, every campus, you're going to have a live communicator that shares a word they've received from God. Now, that is the result of the vision and the leadership of our senior pastors. So before we begin, can we please give some honor to pastors Troy and Penny Maxwell? Absolutely. So this week, we are kicking off a new series, A Thousand Hills, and I am so excited to share. For those of you that don't know me, I really am normally this amped, but I'm really excited today. Because there is something that God has been working on in me, been working on in my wife Jenny and I, that we get a chance to share today. So I want to open with this from Psalms 50. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. Now that is such a powerful picture of the provision, the richness that is God's bounty. I mean, if you thought the Dutton Ranch had some livestock, right? <laughs> now, we say all the time, God is our rock and our refuge. He is our protector. He is Jehovah Jireh. He is the provider. But the question I want to ask you today, do you really believe that? And if you really believe that, are you living in a manner that demonstrates that conviction to everybody around you, believers and non-believers? Now, I'm going to tell on myself a lot in this message today. It is confession time up in church. Because I am somebody who has not always demonstrated that conviction. I am somebody who still struggles with it from time to time. I am somebody who for decades has long fought the poverty mindset. Sometimes you'll hear it called the poverty mentality, the scarcity mindset. Right? It is something that has stalked me for a long time. And as somebody who has been through it, I'm here to tell you today, if that's you and you don't hit it head on, if you don't eradicate it from its roots and remove that thinking from your heart, it is going to become a very real barrier to realizing God's provision in your life. And by an extension, it will limit your ability to be a blessing to others. Now, Jesus knew as much. He says it very clearly in the Sermon on the Mount. This is Matthew chapter 6. He says, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Some translations will say you cannot serve God and mammon. Now, there may be, may be some of you out there who say, Sam, what, what is a poverty mentality? What's a scarcity mindset? It is the fear that there is never enough. There's never enough money in your bank account. You never have enough days PTO. You never have enough time with your family. There's never enough food in the pantry. It is that fear that you are always one step away 
from being destitute and everything falling apart, even if reality clearly says otherwise. Now, you may ask, Sam, why do you think that way? I want to tell you a story. Now, I'm going to test it out on y'all because my mom is coming second service. <laughs> and she doesn't know I'm going to tell this story. <clears throat> so I'm going, I'm going to get some feedback when this is over. Okay, yeah. Now, both my parents were teachers. Amazing people. Devoted to helping others. Selfless, tireless work ethic. They sacrificed so I never had to. Even when my parents got divorced, I always felt loved. I always felt provided for. Now, my mom got paid on the 20th of every month. So on the 19th, in her classroom at Eastridge Middle School, we would turn over her purse. I remember it. It was a blue purse that had this little A on the zipper. If four quarters fell out, we both got a Coke from the vending machine. If two quarters fell out, only I got a Coke from the vending machine. <laughs> if no quarters fell out, nobody got a Coke from the vending machine. And there were plenty of months where no quarters fell out. So we just waited a day. Now, let me tell you what I should have seen in that moment. I should have seen my mother as the selfless woman that she was and she is. I mean, she pours it out, y'all. She's a realtor now, devoted to her clients. She was devoted to her students. She's always been devoted to her neighbors. She gives it all. She once drove five and a half hours to Chapel Hill, North Carolina to surprise me at church, hear me sing a three-minute so so three solo, buy me a foot-long meatball sub at Subway, get back in her car and drive home. That's the kind of person she is. That is the definition of a selfless giver. But I had the wrong filter. Because somewhere in there, my alpha male protector took over. And when I saw it, I didn't see mom sacrificing, giving me her last cent. What I saw was, I want to make sure my family always has four quarters. So the cycle began. I became a saver, which translates to, I was cheap. <laughs> not thrifty, not frugal. I'm in church, so I'm not going to lie. I was cheap. Scrimped at every turn. Listen, Jenny and I got married. We had two corporate salaries. And I'm still checking every transaction on the credit card statement. Jenny has to talk me off the ledge. When we went to buy our first house... Do you see what that down payment is? That interest rate is a whopping 3.62. <laughs> this is incalculable. A down payment? Can you imagine taking that out of savings? When we had our first child, we had spent seven years living just off my income so that when Jenny quit, we wouldn't feel a difference. Sure enough, Jenny quits, and I get upset because we don't feel a difference. Why isn't the credit card bill going down? We're not traveling anymore. Come to find out, a flight to Colorado and a month's worth of diapers cost the exact same thing. <laughs> Preach right there. And that's you get the cheap kind, right? But yeah, so, but it continues. Even when I left Wells Fargo to come into ministry, 
God's calling on my life, the opportunity I'd always dreamed of. You know what I was more focused on than answering the call? Salary. Can I do this? Can our family still travel? Am I still gonna be able to ski? I remember there was one night I was laying in bed. I'd been looking at the financials. I'm like, Jenny, do you think I could possibly do both jobs at the same time? And all the people in ministry just chuckled incessantly, right? I said, listen, what if I could stay at Wales through March? That's one more bonus. That's one more stock vest. Wouldn't that be a feather in my cap? Jenny shot up in bed. I remember the look she gave me. She said, that's pride right there. And she's exactly right. See, she knew I wanted to provide for my family, and that was great. But I wasn't realizing God was calling me into ministry. In that moment, I was treating God like cattle instead of honoring him as the owner of the ranch. I was preoccupied for providing for my family without realizing I was a child of God who always provides for his family. No, I give you all that because the reality is you don't have to come from poverty or be at the poverty line to have a poverty mentality. I had an amazing childhood. By the time I was 18, I'd been to Europe twice and had been to 48 states. All you have to do is lose perspective of the truth that you are not the provider, God is. And that is something that will never, ever change. And make no mistake, Satan will always ensure you have opportunities to serve mammon first. That is why you have to dig up the stronghold of mammon by its roots, otherwise you cannot grow appropriate spirit-filled fruits. Now, the good news for me, I feel blessed to say I believe I have broken free from the poverty mindset. It still stalks me. It's like, hey, still here. If you want to check in, maybe save a little, right? But it doesn't hold me captive. And today I want to give you three tools that I use to break free, break free. Three tools that I still use to keep it at bay. And even if you don't struggle with the poverty mindset financially, don't tune out. There is a message here for everybody because you can struggle with a poverty mentality in every single facet of your life. Today we're going to talk about prayer, prioritization, and perseverance. Here we go. The first tool is prayer. Now listen to this verse from 1 Kings. This is David's parting words to his son Solomon. When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon his son saying, I am about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man and keep the charge of the Lord your God walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules and his testimonies as it is written in the law of Moses that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. Now, what I think is so amazing here, this is the last thing David is ever going to say to Solomon. This is the same David who slayed Goliath, who brought the ark back to Jerusalem, who was a king for 40 years, who slayed his tens of thousands. But he tells his son the best way he can be a man is to honor God. Not on the battlefield, 
but in his leadership and in his heart. Now, man, I think this goes to you first and foremost. Because I know you want to be protectors. I know you want to be providers, and providing is important. But prayer is more important. Listen, when it comes to prayer and provision, how you set the table is more important than what you put on the table. Said another way, all the college savings in the world, all the guns in your safe, all the advice you speak over your kids, this is not going to have the impact you want it to unless you first go to God in prayer and say, God, what is your will for my life and the life of my family? You need to be in prayer about everything, and your kids need to see it. They need you leading prayer at mealtime. They need you praying over them before they go to school, before they go to their jobs. They need you laying hands on them when they're sick. They need you as the earthly provider to show them you are fully dependent upon God and not your own abilities. Model what it says in Psalms 50. It exhorts us to offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. And call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Thank God for everything. Come to God with everything. Now listen. I know right now especially with everything happening in the world, it is hard not to worry about providing for your family. Depending on which source you look at, inflation is up somewhere between 9 and 40%. Right? And you feel it. Listen, if you do grocery shopping, the $2 shell of strawberries is now 4 And if you buy organic, it's 837 right? <laughs> You used to get the dollar eggs. Now they're 64 but that's if they're not cage-free, right? I was talking with somebody the other day who said in the last couple of years, wages in California have gone up 13%, but housing prices have risen 847%. But we cannot let a results mentality trump our faith in Christ. Listen, we're called to work hard. Absolutely. But we do not judge ourselves by the results of our labors. There is nothing wrong with wanting to provide. Provide abundantly for your family. But there are factors beyond your control. Economies crash. Businesses downsize. Downsize. For those of you who feel that, if you ever feel that shame, you want to provide and wonder why, ask yourself, if the economy tomorrow, the stock market goes down 35%, your business announces it is closing shop and you no longer have a job. Fellas, are you any less of a man on Monday than you were this past Friday? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But that is where trusting in the Lord comes in. Because no matter what is happening around you, there is the anchor of your soul that will get you through it. God has a better plan for you, so don't focus on the results. Focus on Jesus. It's always going to be easy to be anxious. It was easy to be anxious 2,000 years ago, but God is clear. We're not to do that. Paul writes as much in his letter to the Philippian church. He says, do not be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. 
And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul is paraphrasing Jesus, but Jesus is very clear. Don't worry, just pray. I mean, you think about Jesus' life on earth. He knew he was being hunted. He had no home. He knew what earthly fate awaited him, but still he prayed. In spite of it, he prayed. And when he prayed, what did he say? Father, not my will, thy will be done. Listen, we all have things that worry us because we are human. It's normal, but they can't become idols. They cannot become strongholds, especially if they are about money. Because if that's the case, what happens is the poverty mindset starts to creep in. Suddenly you say, well, I can't spend there because I might need it over here. Suddenly you say, I better not kingdom build because I want to make sure there's just enough in reserve. I don't think I can tithe, but I could probably still give 7.5%. That would probably be good enough. And so it begins. And as it does, the roots of the poverty mindset grow deeper. And as they grow deeper, the fruits that you produce will change. Look, we need to bring our troubles to God because he is the provider. He is the healer. He is the source of wisdom. He will fill us with peace. He will show us where we need to go, what changes we need to make, where we need to trim versus press in. Consider the words of Solomon from Proverbs 2, wisdom he received after talking to God. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart. And knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you. Remember, God exists outside of time. He knows exactly what you need and when you need it. Far better than we do. Men, be vulnerable. Be honest. Nobody expects you to be perfect. And it is important you let your family know you're not perfect and you don't expect them to be either. What is important is that they know that while you don't have all the answers, you know who does have all the answers. And you are pointing them to God the Father constantly. We go to him in prayer and we listen to what he says. But that's where it gets tricky. Because when you go to God in prayer, how many of you know he answers? Especially when you pray that dangerous prayer of, Father, not my will, thy will be done. Because what happens? God shows you his will, which often may not be in line with the changes you want to make. But that's where the second step comes in. Prioritization. Consider this from Matthew chapter 6. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I want you to think about how you spend the money in your life. Show me your credit card, I'll show you your priorities. 
travel, dinners out, clothes, charity, investments. Listen, it is critical to take inventory of what you believe, what you say, and what you do, especially the do of spending. Streaming services are my favorite example. Who here remembers when Disney Plus was $5.99 a month? Right? Now it's like $25. Who remembers when Netflix was $7 a month? I remember when the DVD subscription was three times more expensive than the online one. That, that was a thing. That happened. Right? So you get Netflix, you get Disney, you get Hulu, you get Peacock, you get Stars Plus, you get Satanta, you get Fox something, blah, blah, blah. Suddenly, you got 29 streaming services. And they're costing you $850 a month. But then you look around at your life. You got the lawn care. You got the dry cleaning. You got the kids sports. You got the dog walker. And then the price on everything jumps 10%. Now, if it's one thing, you're like, we can absorb that. But in totality, that is a big number. And at some point, it rises faster than what's coming in. And you say, we got to make some cuts. We've got to prioritize where we spend our money. Now, let me submit to you today, it is healthy. It is, in fact, critical that we regularly inventory how we spend all that God has given us. That's time, that's energy, and that's money. If we focus on money first, I think it's simple because I think there is an order in which God asks us to spend our money. The first is the time. Now, we talk about it every Sunday. Angelique did a great job talking about it today. I'm not going to belabor it, but the reality is if you're not willing to trust God with the first 10%, you can never turn around and then ask him to bless the other 90%. I hear a lot of people say, I can't afford to tithe. Y'all, I'm telling you, you can't afford not to. Second is give Give an offering. Get seed in the ground. And this can be a hard one. But who here is reading the book, The Blessed Life, by Robert Morris, right? You will find when you read it, you cannot outgive God. Now, I'm not saying you just go throw money away. You pray about it. You pray about where God wants you to invest. But if you want a blessing, seek to be a blessing. Matthew 6, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Third, save. Now, that is not exciting, but it's prudent. And if some of you are out there saying, Sam, why should I save? Why do I need a rainy day fund if I am trusting God to provide? It's a great question. But my perspective is there is a difference between saving in fear and saving in faith. See, saving in fear pulls you from God. Saving in faith draws you near to God. Saving in fear is unproductive. You say, I'm trying to put back as much money as possible to cover every eventuality if something goes wrong. I want to control it. But the reality is you can never cover every angle so it will never be enough. There's always going to be something that still worries you. But when you're saving in faith, that is biblical. It says, I have margin, but I'm not going to eat my seed. It says, I'm going to be a good steward, 
of this bounty, of this excess, so that when God calls me to do something, it is there and I can move according to his will. Joseph in Egypt is an amazing example. Seven years of bumper crops along the Nile. He could have used all of that. They could have had seven years of amazing parties, but he knew the famine was coming. He was a good steward and he saved in preparation to honor God. But after those three, there's what's left. Your discretionary spending. This is where I want to lean in. Can I encourage you today, with your discretionary spending, prioritize experiences over things and community over isolation. This is where the stewardship of God's provision really appears. This is where time, energy, and finances intersect. Listen, your time is even more finite than your money, which is why we've got to be so intentional about it. No, I'm not saying never have a spa day on your own. Get your manicure, your pedicure. No, I'm not saying go run a marathon by yourself. I say that because I've run 17 of them and I can never get anybody to run one with me, right? <laughs> but what I am saying is you've got to be intentional wherever possible about bringing people along for the ride. Your family, your friends, you focus on those experiences, those memories, those traditions. And look, it doesn't mean you can't buy things. Just consider the why. You want a new sound bar for the house? Buy it. Just make sure you are pumping family movies through it as well as what you're watching so that you as a family are together. You want a boat? You can afford it? Buy it. Just make sure you and your dad and your uncles and your friends, you're going out, you're fishing together, you're solving life's problems together. That's how earthly investment becomes eternal investment. I love how my best friend John Rice said it once to me. He said, the world is a lot smaller when we're intentional about our actions. And I'm just now starting to really process the exceptional nature of being different. I love what he's saying there. He's not saying live small. He's saying be intentional about your time. Drown out the noise, focus on the people God has brought to you and pour into them what God has told you to share with them. That makes you different. It makes you and your interactions with other people truly uncommon. Now, I'm going to tell on myself again. Jenny is also not in this service, but the next one, and she's in this one, so maybe a little more feedback also would be a good idea. So, <laughs> summer was brutal for me and Jenny. I have no lie to tell. Hardest summer I've ever had. Work, competing priorities, we were stressed out. There was no peace in the house. There was general frustration. Something was off for the first time ever at Team Taylor. So much so that people could tell. I had a good face, but the people that really knew me saw the cracks in the armor. My mom, my dad, my pastors. Now, there was just a lot going on planning for a golf tournament, prepping for another year of school, being on the board for swim team, trying to 
run the kids' ministry every single week, trying to raise two kids, trying to plan a family vacation, trying to be a good husband, trying to be a good dad, trying to fulfill the different roles that people had for me, expected of me, that I expected of myself, trying to read a book a week, trying to grill once a week, trying to teach myself piano. What was I thinking? <laughs> I mean, get Chad up here. He can just, yeah, no, so, yeah, so. Listen, I was doing everything but nothing well, everything just good enough. Mile wide, inch deep. And I was frustrated. And I was taking it out on my family. I was taking it out on everybody who would listen. See, I had the scarcity mindset. I had FOMO, fear of missing out. But I also coined a new phrase. I had FOAF, fear of always failing. I had time scarcity. I'm not being a good father. I'm not being a good husband. I'm never home. When I am home, I'm focused on everything but my kids and my family. If I could just get some more stuff done. Platform scarcity. Y'all, preaching is my favorite thing to do in the world. And I had this fear in my head that if I couldn't do everything perfectly, we as a teaching team, I'd say, Sam, you, you need a season off. We need to give you space to fix some of this. Joy scarcity. Jen and I were going through the roughest patch in our 17 years of marriage, and it showed. Until last summer, I can count on one hand the number of times we'd actually disagreed. We easily outpaced that in the month of July, right? There was tension. We were distant emotionally and physically. Money scarcity. There it was again, the poverty mindset. Our new income, it was, the budget was predicated on Jenny and I working, but working together at the academy was not going well. Right? It was tough. Nothing about it was healthy. All we talked about was work. We actually found that if we sat at the dinner table and we couldn't talk about work, we didn't have anything to talk about. That's the first time in 20 years as a couple that had ever happened. See, somewhere in all the travel, the deadlines, the work, the vacation planning, the events, I'd forgotten the Team Taylor vision statement. See, we got this framed at our house. Team Taylor's creed is five words. Faith, family, fitness, finances, football. Because <laughs> I played a lot, as you can tell. No, no, definitely not true. <laughs> but somewhere along the way, I'd forgotten whether or not every activity I said yes to actually honored that creed. See, somewhere along the way, I was not being a good steward of, of what I'd been given. I was fighting so desperately to honor new things, but still try to live a life that I had lived in corporate America. In essence, I was trying to bring this old wineskin in with the new wine. See, God had called me to leave a hill because he knew it was no longer best for my family. I was still trying to find cattle on a hill. God was trying to walk me down so he could take me through a valley and show me to a better one. Me not being grateful for what I'd been given, me not being a good steward, that put me out of position. And when I was out of position, I was suddenly out of position with my family. 
It affected every facet of my life. I talked about daddy-daughter date night. Never did it. I talked about dating my spouse. I took her on one date all summer. I felt like I was failing everywhere. There was no end in sight, no relief on the way. I feel like how I think the disciples must have looked when Jesus spoke to them in this section of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you being anxious can add a single hour to your span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you. Even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow was thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what will we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for today is its own trouble. Now, that was me. I was anxious about everything, and we knew something had to change. And so August 3rd, we finally had our second date night of the summer. Bubba's Bunkhouse in Harrisburg, North Carolina. <laughs> it's good. Things were great until they weren't. And when the wheels fell off, Jenny and I looked at each other like something's got to change. Because in the natural, we can't do this. See, we've got to go to God because we need relational, emotional provision. We need that right now before we talk about anything else. We have got to fix this because what we have isn't sustainable. Working at the academy, everything else we're doing, trying to raise kids, trying to do this in the natural will never work. So God has got to turn our test into a testimony. But there was one thing that we knew couldn't change. We knew that no matter what, we had a calling on our lives. We were blessed beyond measure. We had been given talents, gifts, and experiences for such a time as this. And we were never going to walk away from that. That's the third and final tool in breaking out of the poverty mindset. You've got to persevere. Now, there's a scene in the movie, The Hunt for Red October, where the Russian sub-captain Marco Ramius, played brilliantly by Sean Connery, says this. Try my accent. <laughs> when he reached the New World, Cortez burned his ships. As a result, his men were well-motivated. <laughs> Terrible. I know. It's okay. It's okay. Yeah. 
Oscar, Oscar goes to, no. I jest, but it's always resonated with me because Jenny and I had burned the ships. We knew that as tough as things were, we were all in. Freedom House, Freedom Academy, this marriage, there was no turning back. But we knew we had to turn up. We knew we had to look. We were not going to run to Tarshish like Jonah. We were not going to run to the wine press like Gideon. No, we were all in. Did we trust God or not? So Jenny looks at the calendar. And she says, hey, in 28 days, we got a family vacation planned. What if we fast? We looked at each other. We felt God speak to us. Y'all need to fast. Yes, sir. Right? So we decided we were going to fast 28 days and see what God did in our life. Let me tell you, wow. Now, I will give you the spoiler alert first. The fast does not work in the first 20 minutes after you declare it. <laughs> if you say, I'm giving up TV and you simply skip the next episode of Yellowstone, you probably will not get the blessing that you are chasing down. This is Matthew 6. When you fast, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites. They disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And it was the same for us. We didn't see any changes in the natural on day one, but we did in the spiritual. Peace had arrived. Because suddenly we were aligned and we were connected to the Holy Spirit. We were seeking God in the manner he instructs us. And God was now entwined in the mix. Ecclesiastes 4. And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Now, that threefold cord was me, Jenny, and Jesus. By day three, there was more peace in the house. By day five, the kids could tell that we were more relaxed. By day seven, I realized we didn't need an activity for the kids every single night. Sitting around the dinner table, playing cards, hanging out, that actually was better. By day eight, I took a breath and started to enjoy our house the way I'd always talked about, watching the sunrise with my cup of coffee, throwing the football with the girls out back. By day 10, I was no longer worried about income. God was either my provider or he wasn't. How could I stand up here and talk about generosity and not believe that? Day 12, we had a love offering for Freedom Academy where an anonymous donor incredibly matched every single donation. So blessing after blessing continued. Chain after chain fell off. I also realized the, the habits I'd formed, the unhealthy life patterns, the crutches I was leaning onto when I should have been leaning on God. You throw in an amazing golf tournament, the opportunity I had to preach in August, at the end of August, and then a great start to the school year, you have a powerful lesson for why fasting is important and what it can do in your life. Now, here's the thing. 
after the golf tournament, which that's a lot of work, I had two days left in the fast. And I could have simply walked away saying, man, that was good. Thank you, God. Appreciate it. But we can't do that. You've got to persevere. And you've got to do it for two reasons. See, when we commit to God, we don't just walk away because we owe him the honor of finishing that commitment. But the other reason, when you truly honor that commitment, the breakthrough that you are truly waiting on is often on the other side of that obedience. See, for me, I had mentioned earlier, I had a platform scarcity fear. Preaching is my favorite thing to do. I love it so much. And on the 28th day of the fast, on the way to the beach, I got the opportunity to preach this message. I wasn't on the schedule. I wasn't on the calendar. Things moved around. And they said, hey, Sam, can you talk about this for Thousand Hills? And I actually get a chance to preach this message next week at South End. And since that time, since that 28th day, I have had opportunity after opportunity to share the gospel. Now, that was something I never expressed publicly, but in my heart of hearts, it was something I wanted. And God knows the desires of your hearts. He knows it. And because he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, he is able to give you exceedingly and abundantly more than you could ever ask, think, or imagine. Now, I mentioned earlier I was worried about being able to ski when I left corporate America. Could I still travel? You know, I have skied more and in better places in my first year of ministry than the 25 years before it. I was worried, oh, my girls can only go to the beach once a summer. Is that going to be okay? You know, we've laughed harder in the last eight weeks than we had in the previous two years playing rummy, watching reruns of Wipeout on TV. Because I realize it's not about the location. It's about the time and the people you're with. And on top of all of it, I finally got the biggest gift of all. The realization that yes, some days are tough in ministry. A lot of days are tough in ministry. But every one of them is bursting with purpose and promise. See, somewhere along the way, God did an amazing thing in me. He filled me up physically, but more importantly, he filled me up spiritually, and he showed me a fundamental truth. He owns the cattle not on a thousand hills, on a million hills. And not only does he have a mountain reserved for each and every one of us, he expects us to take some of the cattle that we have been given down the hill and help other people when they are in the valley before they find the map to their peak. See, we're blessed with so much. We are called first to focus on others, to be a blessing, showing them the love of Christ and being stewards of what we've been given. That knowledge is what allows me to allay one last fear, one last worry that stalks me. Doesn't control me, but it's always there. And I imagine for parents out there, all of you feel this at some point. It's the fear of not being there when my family needs me. 
especially in my case, my wife and my two daughters. I turned 46 last Thursday. I'm not, I'm not an old man. Some would disagree. I'm not an old man. But math says I'm halfway to eternity. Now, I hope I make it that far. I hope I die old and full of days, full of memories, with laugh lines so deep you could park a Volvo inside them, right? But there is that fear. The fear of God calling me home early. Before my girls are out of the house, I leave Jenny with a house to manage, bills to pay, two beautiful kids to raise on her own. I think about the million things that could keep me from being there to help my girls through their middle school years, to help them figure out, should they go to college? If so, which college? To help them move into their first place, to help make sure he's the one to walk them down the aisle. And most importantly, to know that they got Jesus so deep that they can stand on their own two feet when the world tries to tell them everything but the truth about the gospel. I think about Jenny and the hard times that are to come, and they're coming, but the good times too. The sunsets, the memories, the laughter, the graduations, where you just want to hug somebody and share in that joy. But that's when you got to lean into Jesus. Jehovah Jireh, the provider. Because the truth is I know I cannot let those fears gain any traction in my mind. The worry doesn't prevent them, and the reality is, the one who has the cattle on a thousand hills already has my days numbered. And as such, I choose to believe Romans 8, 28, that God will use everything to accomplish his purpose for the good of those who love him. So it means that when I am finally poured out like a drink offering like Paul, even if it's an old man or if it is somewhere sooner, I want to believe that somebody else will come through. Somebody else will remind you where that fear is from and they'll remind you we already have victory over it. They'll say, Sam, rest in the endless provision and blessing of the Creator. And when you do that, you can give, you can surrender, you can trust. I opened us with Psalm 50. I want to close us with the psalm that allays this fear, that reminds me who the provider is and what the provider will do for you. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Would you stand on your feet with me? Now, if you're in here today and you say, I don't know that Jesus. I don't know that Jesus who is my shepherd, who will 
walk me through the valley? Who will provide for me? Who will set that table in the midst of my enemies? I want to introduce you to him. And if you say, that sounds great, but I don't know that I can trust him when the walls are closing in and I've got bills to pay, let me assure you, you can trust him. You can trust him when you can't trust anybody else. So with every head bowed, every eye closed. If you say, that's me. If you say, I want Jesus as Lord and Savior in my life. I want him as Jehovah Jireh, as Jehovah Rapha, as Jehovah Nisi, the banner that will cover me. I want to know that love and that provision in every facet of my life. Would you raise your hand? I see that hand. 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 All right, church, we're going to pray a prayer together. I'm going to say it. I want you to repeat after me. Say, dear Jesus, thank you so much for your provision, for your wisdom, for your love, and for dying for me. I make you Lord and Savior and provider of my life. I trust in you and believe you will show me paths of service, of love, and generosity. In Jesus' name, amen. Give a round of applause.